Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at Houston's bar and restaurant scene. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Austin chef Adam Brick and James Brown from Barton Springs Mill coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my good friend, Tyler Horn. He's the market manager for Urban Harvest. So if you've ever been to the farmer's market at City Hall on Wednesdays or Saturdays uh, in the Upper Kirby area, Tyler is the person responsible for putting that together. Tyler, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Eric. Thanks for being here. We have much to discuss, starting with the news that Finn Hall, the downtown food hall coming to the uh, J.P. Morgan Chase Tower downtown, has announced four new concepts backed by local restaurants. They're going to join Mala Sechuan. The first is Good Company Taqueria, which I feel like doesn't need much of an explanation. Low Tide, which is a casual seafood restaurant from the folks behind Harold's in the Heights. Mr. Nice Pie, a pizza by the slice concept from the same folks that own Love Buzz and Montrose, and Dish Society, the very popular farm-to-table restaurant that has three Houston area locations with a fourth coming to the Heights. Uh, Tyler, what do you think about these four concepts that are joining Mala? So that makes five. Are these five enough to get you into Finn Hall when it opens sometime this summer? I'd say definitely. I'm a good company fan through and through and uh, love the guys at Dish Society and what they're up to. And I think it'll be cool to see what Richard and uh, the Herald's folks come up with for the concept. So, yeah, that definitely would get me in the door, especially with Mala. That's probably one of my go-to eat takeout once a week from type places. So, Yeah, I I had the experience, and I talked about this on the show last week, uh, a little bit of going to a food hall in Plano, Legacy Hall, and seeing the diversity there. And I I like what I like that food hall experience of being able to get one dish from one place or another dish from another, or especially we were a, a group of diverse eating interests. And so everybody got something that they were really excited about. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I think this idea of partnering with prominent local restaurants is an effective way to get people through the door. I agree. I mean, I think that's that's smart. And uh, I like the a la carte food hall experience as well. I've been to a bunch now across the country and I think it's exciting that they're coming here and uh, be interested to see with as many of them popping up around the same time, how all that plays out. But um, the uh, the thing I'd like to see, too, is maybe just a little bit more uh, representative of all the diversity of food that we have in Houston. So if they're thinking of some other slots, maybe South American food would be uh, fun or doing something, um, you know, maybe like a Vietnamese concept would be cool too. Yeah, I think Vietnamese food is definitely mandatory and and not just banh mi and pho, but hopefully a more expansive vision of that cuisine. You know, I'd like to see a sushi spot, you know, something Japanese. I know that Samurai Noodle didn't work out at at Conservatory, but I I do feel like downtown could support a, a proper ramen shop. So maybe something that blends those two or even like a cool yakitori concept like grilled meats 
Yeah, good and know? simple. That would work. Yeah, I think any of those would work. Uh, I mean, this is Houston. I can't imagine that there won't be a burger place there. <laughs> but certainly a lot of certainly a lot of promise for Finn Hall, and it it is well located. It it is it does have tunnel access. I think that's really important. It's a little bit south of the downtown bar scene, but I do think that this is an important first step, and and that this idea that you know with with conservatory and then lyric market coming kind of to the arts district also later this year that these food halls it really is going to be about the vendors to who they who they bring in as vendors is really what's going to set these places apart yeah i agree um you know and it's in my in my line of work particularly with the city hall market uh it seems like the next uh logical step for a lot of those people. We've seen like Melange Crapery, for example, before he opened his uh, freestanding brick and mortar, he went into conservatory. And um, I'd like to see more of our vendors have opportunities to get into places that have uh, lower overhead and uh, fewer barriers of entry to uh, start with a brick and mortar location. And so that's where it's attractive. Yeah, I think I think in, an, in a certain situation, this becomes an appealing option for People in a food truck, right? Because they have all day utility. They're they're open every, not just not just all day, but but every day, so that instead of a food truck where you're sort of weather dependent or, or you know, finding a business that you can partner with to park somewhere, it's like this is a fixed place that you can get into. And now the only thing is that it's my understanding that they they take a percentage of sales in lieu of people paying the build out that the food hall operator takes a percentage of their sales uh, that can be pretty high. 30% is what I heard. That's what I heard too. So that seems like a lot, you know, that's your, that's your margin, right? Yeah. So, so on a good day. So that's a, that's a scary thought. But. So I think that is one of the reasons that, that so far the partners are existing restaurant concepts that can maybe fade some of those costs in a way that are, that are more equitable or that it's an extension of their brand and it helps them reach customers that they might not otherwise reach. So it may not be quite for the, you know, I said, I'd love to see it be kind of the new food truck, but maybe it's, maybe it's not quite for that. Maybe this is, it's something a little bit different. All right, let's move on. This is a a sad news. I was, I was, I was all ready to write the headline number, any, some number of Houston chefs will be going for the three Pete in the James Beard awards. Uh, but it's not going to happen. Uh, the James Beard Foundation announced their finalists last week. Zero Houston chefs will be competing for the title of Best Chef Southwest. Instead, there's uh, a couple from Austin, one from San Antonio, one from Santa Fe, and one from Denver. Houston has had a good run in the James Beard Awards recently. Uh, Chris Shepard won in 2014. Justin Yu won in 2016, and of course, Hugo Ortega won in 2017. Tyler, what do you think? Are we, or is the dynasty over, or is this just a temporary setback? I think it's just a temporary setback. Um, when I saw particularly Ryan Perry's name on that list, I was really um, excited, and I uh, think he's just one of the best chefs in, uh, in the city and deserves a ton of recognition, uh, as do the others on that list. But um, I think it's uh, we're still going to be in the forefront of James Beard recognition uh, in years to come and excited for Bobby that he made the cut and it's well-deserved and would love to see Anvil being recognized on that level. Yes, it's it's 
too bad just from from my perspective as an interview I have Bobby Hugel on the show but it but the announcement that he that Andal had been selected as the city's only James Beard finalist happened after we recorded and before we published so I didn't get to ask him about it but yes very exciting for Anvil a, a place that certainly has pioneered the cocktail movement in this city um, and is certainly worthy of national recognition the interesting thing is that there were a number of Houston semifinalists that showed some of the city's diversity uh, Trung Win from Crawfish and Noodles uh, the guys from Kitchen 713 and, and I think there is this critique of the Beard Foundation that they really only feature certain types of chefs doing certain types of cuisine. The semifinalist nominations broaden that. Hopefully they hopefully they they feel a little heat and that, you know, someone like Kaiser Lashkari from Himalaya can get a little national love. Yeah, I'd love to see that. I love Kaiser. Um, that would be that would be great. And then finally, I just want, or well, not finally, but next, I want to discuss the changes at the honeymoon. The downtown coffee shop and cafe has closed, or it, it's spending a week and undergoing some some mild renovations, and then it will reopen as Boomtown Coffee, Main Street Cafe, and Bar. This brings it into line with Boomtown Coffee uh, Cafe in the Heights. Uh, the Boomtown folks have always been involved in the honeymoon, but now they have purchased all of it, and so they rebranded it, and they're tweaking it a little bit. Tyler, are you a Boomtown fan? Big Boomtown fan. I've uh, known Matt for a long time, and I uh, think, uh, think they're great. Love the breakfast tacos there, so I think that'll be a neat addition to see come uh, come to the honeymoon. You know, I drive past the honeymoon on my way into the office uh, most days, and it would be nice to pop in there for a uh, quick breakfast. Um Curious to see what they do with the interior. I always thought it was a pretty beautiful space the way they did it and hope they don't change too much. So, Yeah, I think they're just trying to make it a little more coffee shop oriented, a little more grab-and-go friendly. They are going to keep the bar. They're going to keep most of the popular food items. I know the burger is staying. I know most of the sandwiches are staying. Good. I mean, and I'm the, the classic grab-and-go customer there, so to make that quick and easy and get back out to my car and a reasonable amount of time would make that a nice uh, a nice thing yeah and we've talked about some of the changes downtown i mean there's more residential than ever and there's more on the way if sort of more explicitly tying the honeymoon into a popular local coffee shop can help draw customers and, and make it kind of that casual coffee shop cafe for downtown i think that's all to the good all to the good I did have, you know, I. It's been a while since the Culture Map office was downtown, but but the honeymoon was kind of in the in the lunch rotation, and and it's still a nice spot for after work. It has a kind of New Orleansy look to it that I I've always thought was really pretty. I think it's got a great vibe, and uh, it's easier for me to get down there after after work hours. So I think it'll be cool to see what happens with the late night stuff as well. All right, and then we did have a story on culture map that I didn't write, but am highly intrigued by the crawfish app is something that I didn't know exists. Tyler, did you, did you no, see this? I saw it in the, in the notes, but I, I'm not familiar with it. So this is an app that gives you access to information all along the Gulf coast, not just for Houston, uh, for size and price and availability 
of crawfish. And certainly we are in high crawfish season. I know we got off to a little bit of a late start, but the, the weather has been great. I was driving I was driving Saturday night and I saw a big crowd in front of the harp that reopened. And then I saw a line out the door at LA Crawfish as I was heading west on Richmond. And I just thought, well, yeah, that's that's Houston in the spring. Everybody wants crawfish and, and a place to have a nice beer. So so this app then, the Crawfish app, which is available for both uh, iPhones and uh, Android, helps people find crawfish. I think that's that's a highly useful thing in Houston. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Um, yeah, I saw my crawfish guy on Saturday, and he was saying, you know, thing the the bugs are getting bigger and the price has dropped, and so that's a big a big thing. But uh, shameless plug: anyone ever getting crawfish, you can always go to airline seafood and uh, they'll actually bring the bags to the market uh, if you order them in advance and you can grab a sack of crawfish from the farmer's market on Saturdays. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, they don't like doing it because it's kind of hard to transport it, but they'll do it if you, if you ask nice and uh, you can always go, it's a a half mile down the street to the shop and uh, pick up a bag as well. Where do you go for cooked crawfish? I go to LA crawfish. Yeah. Do Do you have a Cajun favorite? Are you a BB's guy? You know, I, I don't. To be honest, I hate to say it, I'm not a huge BB's fan, so I don't. Um, I don't go there very often. Uh, Ashley, my wife, loves crawfish way more than I do. Uh, I'm more of a lobster guy, but you know, like, <laughs> you you changed me on our trip. I'd never really eaten fresh lobster, so it uh, kind of ruined me. And I'd always been on the fence about crawfish to begin with, but I'm gonna try sautéing them in the pan like they did on that. Uh, yeah, like ugly they did in Ugly Delicious. Yeah, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give that a shot because I've always thought the same thing. Is like, why why boil them? It's easy to cook a lot that way. But. Yeah, because you can't feed 30 yeah. people sautéing 10 crawfish in a pan at a time. Yeah, we do one boil a year at the house, and that's uh, it gets it out of my system, and it's fun. All right, well, that does it for the News of the Week. We will be right back with our Restaurants of the Week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? So, Tyler, this week uh, for our Restaurants of the Week, I want to talk about a couple of places that are happening right now in Montrose. Uh, The first is Buff Burger. This is a kind of better burger joint that started in the Spring Branch area. 44 Farms Beef. They are committed to doing things like making their own sauces. They source good quality bread and, and local ingredients like goat cheese from... Pure Luck Farm, and it just opened up at the corner of Mandel and West Alabama, which puts it kind of right in the middle of, of everything, close to Hugo's, close to the Manil, close to Good Dog Hot Dog, close to all kinds of stuff. Um, have you been to Buff Burger? I haven't. You know, we live uh, real close by, and I'm uh, looking forward to trying it out. And saw the article you wrote about it, and uh, I also want to see the giant photo of the uh, 44 Farm steer on the wall. Curious to see how that fits into the uh, decor, because I've watched that building be built, you know, the past year, and it's a really, it's a really pretty project. So I, I went there to meet with the owners, uh, Paul and Sarah Burden, and while I was there, a guy walked up to them and said, does Buff stand for Buffalo? And they said, no, it's, it's Paul's nickname. He's, he's known as Buff. And it also means that the burgers are in the buff, which means they use natural meat and that they're not, they're not trying to hide anything with, with a whole bunch of toppings or, or trying to fool you into, into what you're eating. 
I didn't know that there were people who liked buffalo. Are, does anyone eat buffalo burgers? Chef Ara is uh, quite fond of the uh, place that's uh, there off West Park. Um, was it Bubba's Burger Shack? Yes, and Bubba's serve, Texas Burger Shack. Serve the yeah. I don't know. Um, bison burgers still taste good to me, but it's not something I go go out of my way to to go find. Yeah, and and I guess even to the point where there are some people who are confused that the giant cow on the wall might actually be a buffalo. I feel like we need to go back to the. <laughs> The picture books of, you know, this is a cow and this is, it doesn't look like a buffalo. But no, I mean, I, I really enjoyed my visit there. They have uh, 15 craft beers uh, on their tap wall. They have four draft wines and a tap devoted to nitro coffee. And they'll take that nitro coffee and combine it with Lee's Creamery vanilla ice cream for one of the better coffee milkshakes I've had in a long time. I mean, I think the quality of that 44 Farms beef speaks for itself, and they do uh, they do uh, an arugula burger topped with that uh, pure luck goat cheese that and uh, and a slow roasted tomato that I thought was pretty darn delicious. And then right down the street from Buff Burger is Night Heron, a place I know I've talked about on the show a little bit, but you made your first visit, Tyler. What did you think of Night Heron? I loved it. I, I really liked it. Um, we ordered pretty much the whole menu except the uh, rice kanji. I just couldn't finish the meal with a rice kanji, but we worked our way uh, down the menu, and uh, every single thing we had was fantastic. The cocktails were on point, as I would expect from a menu uh, that Morgan would come up with, and uh, everything that we had was solid. The service was pretty good, and uh, just sent a group of friends there tonight that are going to go check it out. So I'd encourage everybody in the neighborhood to go and bit nostalgic about that location since it was Cafe Artiste and, uh, you know, and Sophie's and all that stuff. So it's a cool, cool spot. And uh, I'm excited that they finally made the cross across I-10 to go put something in the Montrose neighborhood. Did you have a favorite dish or two? You know, those uh, frites were really good. The chicken frites was uh, fantastic, like really perfectly breaded. Uh, Angostura nuts was, I could see myself ordering that every time I walked in there to, uh, to, have with my beer and uh i'm kind of i haven't done it so i went to night heron i've had i've had a nice brunch at night heron i I checked the dinner menu out i think on opening night and i haven't been back for a proper a proper revisit even though it's i've been in there for drinks a little bit and it's right down the street from from where i live and and i do like that that very chill atmosphere i've seen it be crowded at brunch not so much at dinner and I just feel like it's a real solid addition to the neighborhood. It looks good. I mean, and they really redid it from, I was curious to see how it was going to transform from lowbrow and it just, it's nice and clean. The lighting is on point. I like a little dim in there and you know, at nighttime, that's perfect. And, um, the, uh, the other thing I really enjoyed was the chicken moose. I think you should definitely check the chicken moose out. Um, I'm, I'm all about the chicken moose. And then finally, let me just, you, I talked about this on the show a couple of weeks ago, but, Topo truck has been a, a real part of, of the urban harvest experience for a little bit. And you finally convinced me to try their tacos. I, I was very impressed. I mean, I just, I feel like those guys are doing things the right way. Uh, another place that's using Texas beef, uh, local ingredients of this grilled, uh, this grilled cauliflower taco that was just fantastic. Yeah. That's the Austin is what he calls it. Yeah. Um, but that's, it's delicious. The guy can cook, you know, he's pretty much self-trained, um, a really, really good add to the market. Um, the breakfast taco, I, I gotta say, and go out on a limb is my absolute favorite breakfast taco in the city. They have a, they, uh, 
confit, potatoes uh, in butter for like 12 hours overnight and they just smash them on the grill and they get all crispy and he uses eggs from the market and uh, makes handmade uh, corn tortillas on the on the flat top and uh, it's it's really a, a spectacular truck and I've had the pleasure of getting to cook with him the past uh, couple of months and just think he's a, a a, a solid uh, addition to our market and so uh, what's his what's his name just to give him yeah, his proper credit <laughs> sorry I, I guess i should call him by his name his name's tony lerman tony lerman and, of el topo truck and his original partner uh they they had a they were cooking out in marfa and uh he his name is uh mike i can't think of his last name but uh originally met mike and mike was kind of doing the menu and um the uh tony mike went to uchi and like uh, he's now at some restaurant in california and so tony took over the entire, you know, operation of cooking himself and uh, has done an admirable job of that. And then, so let's, uh, let's just wrap this up. What's going on at, at Urban Harvest? What can, <clears throat> people, what can people find on the market right now? Oh, strawberries. Uh, actually, this weekend we have a market at St. Arnold's on Sunday. They brewed what's called the Urban Harvest Number no. 3. It's the third seasonal beer that they've done in conjunction with these markets that we do with them. They're, it's indoors inside their... Uh, beer hall area and it's fun it's a good break from the heat um we have about 20 vendors that serve everything from you can get you know lunch items and you can also get uh farm eggs and veggies and meat and you know all that good stuff as well and um so yeah the markets are are really busier than ever uh and we are kind of going into the uh, warmer months and so i know tomatoes and peaches and all that good stuff are coming <clears throat> Yep, I just brought you a bunch of tr- tomato transplants for uh, you to put in your garden today. They're in my trunk, so tis the Perfect. season. Get them in the ground. All right. Well, Tyler, thank you, and uh, we'll be right back with uh, Adam Brick and James Brown. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? Doing something a little bit different with the interview this week in that it is not about a Houston bar or restaurant. It's about a mill. And I, I think I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw to you guys and and we'll kind of go from there. James Brown, you're the owner of Barton Springs Mill. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Adam Brick. You're a chef in Austin. Welcome. Thank you. How are you? Very good. Thanks for doing this. Of course. James, let me start with you. You you own Barton Springs Mill. What is Barton Springs Mill? So we, I would describe us as an artisan mill specializing in heritage and land race grains grown organically in Texas. So how is that different than the regular flour that people like buy in a grocery store? Wow, there are big, big differences. So uh, try to keep it short and sweet. Um, We're using a stone mill, so we're using um, older technology uh, that uses the whole grain. If If you look at modern milled flour that's been roller milled, they're usually removing the bran and the germ the parts that have the most of the nutrient value and the flavor. And we're keeping, generally speaking, we're keeping all of that. Uh, and we're seeing to the, everything from the growing uh, to it shipping out the door so that there's no introduction of chemicals or artificial um, items of any sort in the way of uh, fertilizer or herbicides or insecticides. All right. So how did you become interested? How did, how did you become the owner of a mill? Uh, so I'm originally from Houston. I used to be a, a chef here in Austin, uh, in Houston, uh, when I was younger. Uh, but I was also a musician. So, 
uh, moved to Austin, was uh, working as a musician, but I wanted to uh, retire from that and get back into the culinary world. But at 52, I'm a little old to be standing on the line anymore. And uh, I'd gotten into bread baking at home, reading a lot, you know, Chad Robertson's Tartine books and a lot of the blogs and things online about working with heritage grains. And I thought, ah, oh, that's great. I want to snap up some of those in Texas. And after doing a little Googling, I found out there just wasn't a lot going on in Texas in that regard, and it seemed like a, a good fit. So uh, last year on, uh, in 2017, on January 2nd, we turned on the mills for the first time. So we're just in business a little over a year now. All right. And then, Adam, you've used some of these products at restaurants in Austin. Um, which, well, let me just start with which restaurants have you, have you served these products on your menus or included these products in your recipes? Yeah. Previously, uh, before I, I went off to open my own thing coming up later this year, uh, I was a chef at a restaurant called Apis. And then we opened a pizza restaurant called Pizzeria Sorolina. And Apis was a super high end, uh, very fine dining, uh, mainly tasting menu restaurant. And we wanted to open something very casual that would serve kind of the community we were out of uh, in West Austin. And so we decided to do a pizza restaurant. And I had worked with Napolitan-style pizzas before, um, but I hadn't worked with the type of grain that I knew I wanted in the product. So I was originally milling grain myself, but only in small amounts and not to the level that, that James's mill can do. And I was speaking with a really good friend of mine, Mark, uh, who operates Odd Duck and Barley Swine, and he told me, hey, you know, there's this guy, James Brown, he's going to open a mill. And I was like, Mark, James Brown is a... James Brown a is, a, is, a, is a 60s <laughs> icon. So stop, stop, you know, stop messing with me. But he, he told me everything about it. I, I gave James a call. I think we talked for maybe an hour. And I invited him out to the restaurant and said, just come eat and uh, learn who we are and what we're doing. And uh, tell me how you can help us do this. So that's what we did. You know, we took a product that traditionally is made with an imported double zero flour and worked directly with James uh, because the mill wasn't even open. It was a little bit tricky. So we were just kind of theorizing all the different types of wheat that would go into the dough. And it was just kind of a constant back and forth on what's going to work and what's not going to work. And so for the first couple of months that James was open, it was like perfect timing because we opened, I want to say like four days after he opened the mill. So we were constantly going back and forth with the extraction rates, the different types of wheat. This is working. This isn't working. And what we ended up doing was creating a composite that had uh, four different types of these beautiful wheats. So we had TAM 105 and Fuller, which are a little bit more economical to use. And we, we ground that to double zero originally. And then we were using two different um, varieties ground coarser. We were using a rye called Danko rye. And we are using turkey red wheat. And we were using that for texture and color and that was ground more like a traditional whole wheat flour so so just to be clear is there a is there a commercial flour that you could buy that would blend these different types of wheat in the same way that you're doing that you that you've been able to do with barton springs no okay no (laughs) and then and then uh the other thing is so essentially this is this is i mean we talk about Local produce, Adam. You were just at, at Chef Fest mm-hmm. uh, a couple weeks ago, supporting Loma Agronomics. You've been a part of Indie Chefs Week. Um, it's safe to say that you're a, a chef who cares uh, very deeply about where your ingredients come from. That's true. Um, 
you know, and when we were opening Apis, we never really played a role in the local food community in the way that, say, a Bryce Gilmore or Jesse Griffin does in Austin. You know, they're pioneers, and they are they work so closely with the farmers that it's it's really hard for me as a new chef in town or returning back to Austin. I I was gone for seven years uh, to get into that local game, and so we didn't focus on it and. Our goal was always just to serve the best product we could. And so with pizza, you're making everything off the same base every single time. It doesn't matter if you're firing 15 different pizzas that all have different flavors and different combinations and different types of cheese and sauce. It's still coming off the same dough. And so it doesn't matter how good your pizza dough is. If you're using white double zero flour from Italy, your, your pizza is inevitably going to be the same that everyone else makes. Now, the type of yeast and the quality and how you ferment it, and there's so many different variables that go into pizza, but if I am using the best flour and I'm using the best techniques and I'm cooking the pizza in a slightly smarter way, I cook a little bit less than 900 degrees, I, I, I want to say that I create a superior pizza crust. It's just basic math. I use better flour, so I make better pizza. And then, James, what? obviously you're, you're making pizza flour – what else, what else is coming out of Barton Springs Mill right now? So we make, uh, obviously, a lot of whole grain flours. We make various extractions, 85 65% extraction, the double zero, which is about a 55% extraction. Uh, we also do a lot of corn products. We have six kinds of corn that we uh, sell whole for nixtamalizing to make masa for uh, tortillas. Um, we also have cornmeal and grits. And part of my initial plan was that we needed to support the farmers every way we could. So we're also uh, growing rotation crops with our organic farmers. So historically in Texas, if you grew rotation crops, either they got tilled under for nitrogen return or they were used for cattle feed. And we started looking at, well, how can we monetize these good farming practices? So we're selling organic peanuts now and we're selling organic cowpeas. And the coming year, we're going to be selling organic uh, dried beans uh, in order to show the farmer and help the farmer to have a high-value, high-return crop in, when they're not growing wheat or growing corn for us. All right. So, Tyler, go ahead. Sorry. Where can we find your products in the Texas area? Right now, uh, out of the mill, where our new website for e-commerce is about to go live within the next 7 to 10 days. Uh, we're talking to a couple of retailers here in uh, Houston about carrying our stuff retail, and I'll know a little more about that in about a week. Uh, we're in Salt and Time in Austin, Confiturus, and we'll be in Sour Duck in Austin. Uh, and we're in the Dallas Farmers Market uh, now, currently, and we're selling wholesale in Houston, San Antonio, Dallas, and Austin. All right, so let me so let me come back to that because that that is kind of where I wanted to go. Is which restaurants? So which restaurants in Austin are you working with currently? Gosh, uh, let's see. Well, I'm working with Apis and Sorolina, obviously, in Spicewood, just outside of town. Um, Odd Duck, uh, Barley Swine, Lenoir, Emmer and Rye, uh, Hightower, um, Aviary. So when the top 15 restaurants in Austin uh, came out, uh, the, that list came out a couple of months ago I was in, every one of them that wasn't. Uh, an Asian restaurant. So uh, pretty much uh, anybody that uses wheat and not rice as the basis of their of their grain uh, for for cuisine, we're in we're in those restaurants. And then, obviously, the reason that you're here is because you're trying to find 
a Houston audience for some of these products. How's that going so far? It's going all right. It's It's been a little slow. I think that whole thing about not being able to be a prophet in your own hometown is kind of ringing true right now a little bit. I need to spend a little more time and give a little more love to uh, to Houston, and I think it, we'll see it take off. But uh, we've been making a lot of visits, and people are interested. It Chefs have a narrow bandwidth sometimes to get opportunities to play with new products. So I'll drop something at a, at a restaurant, and it'll be three months or four months, and suddenly I'll hear from them, and they'll start ordering. So... I think we're we're poised to come online. It's just going to take a little bit longer. I mean, Adam, you've become a big advocate for the work that that James is doing. You have some connections to the chef community here. I mean, just from a flavor standpoint, I think you've you've already made the argument that that what James is producing is uh, worth worth trying economically. How much more expensive is this product than regular, I don't know, King Arthur flour or something like that? Well, I mean, King Arthur is one of the more expensive uh, brands for commercial-grade flour. Um, It just depends on the type of wheat that you're using with James. The good thing is he goes everything from your commodity style like Triumph 64, Tam 105, and Fuller all the way up to Einkorn, which will be, you know, six, seven bucks a pound. So there, there's plenty of room to work with James. And the beauty of James is it's all about a conversation. You cannot call General Mills and say, hey, General Mills, can you mill this flour this way? You know, you are talking to someone who knows more about wheat, knows more about milling, more about sifting. And that wealth of knowledge, just kind of like what Glenn Roberts is to Sean Brock in Carolina, you have the ability to alter the end product that you're making. And you have a direct source and a direct connection to not only the miller, but to the, to the rancher. So you can go, you can go visit, you know, the person who's growing the wheat, you know, you can support general mills in Minneapolis uh, and all their shareholders and stockholders, or, you know, you can actually play a role in the local food community. So with James, it is, a direct connection, and, and you can't monetize that. So a good example for me that's a very easy example is Neapolitan pizza. So if you're a large operator and you're buying Caputo Double Zero from Italy, you're buying it for probably about 24 to $0.30 cents a pound depending on, depending on the size of your scale. So if you're a large-scale chain and you're buying it $0.24, cents, your pizza dough, if you're doing a 300-gram dough ball, which is pretty standard, you're going to spend about $0.21 cents a dough ball. The way I do it with a composite of Fuller, Tam 105, uh, Turkey Red, and Danko Rye, my cost was $0.70 cents a dough ball, and that's $0.50 cents more. So you could simply just charge $0.50 cents more for your pizza and cover your costs, or you could add a dollar to your pizza, or you could add a dollar fifty for a more traditional restaurant model at you know, 33% added uh, cost of goods. So... The thing with a margarita pizza is it's very cheap to make. So if you spend 21 cents for your dough ball, you spend 54 cents for your mozzarella, you spend 7 cents for your basil, and 12 cents for your sauce, you got a little salt and olive oil, and you're around a dollar. So kind of the market rate, I'm assuming in Houston, is kind of like 12 to $13 for a margarita. Sound about right? Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I'm trying to think what I... Paid for the margarita pizza I had at Pizarro's last week. Uh, 
Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think that twelve bucks is probably about right. Right. So you're at about seven percent cost of goods there, and that's about a third of what a traditional restaurant costing model would be. So there's tons, uh, tons of room to make money selling really great flour. All you have to do is is not be afraid to charge the value of, of what that product truly is. And that and that's where James is. You know, James is not in the business to lose money. You know, James is employing local farms and, and local people who are milling the flour or driving the flour from the farm to the mill, from the mill to you. Uh, and all, all those little things, they cost a little bit more. And, and these, these grains, these heritage grains, they take longer to grow. Uh, the yield is less, and he can tell you way more about that. But at the end of the day, his business model is in line with uh, the way we want to run businesses. And so as a chef, you know, you, you look at McDonald's or Wendy's right now, and you see the word local and seasonal. I mean, it's everywhere. It's, it's a marketing term now. And so for me, if you, if you truly do care about local and you truly do care about a seasonal menu, then working with James is it's a no-brainer. And so if you want to consider yourself a chef who works with local, if you don't work with local flour, which is the bedrock of our civilization, then you really should not be talking about local. Uh, James, let me, let me bring it back to you for just a minute. How many, how many different types of grain are you – well, <laughs> I have so many questions. Start with just – how are you working with the farmers to get this wheat? Like, what are, where's, where's this coming from? Or like, was this, was it your idea to grow these grains, or were people growing them already, or, or how did that come together? Man, we we started from scratch, so uh, we wanted some sort of touchstone to try to figure out what we should even be growing. And so we looked at the 1919 crop report. It was the first of its kind done with the census. And we looked at it shows by county, by variety, what kind of wheat uh, they were growing, what kind of grains they were growing um, in, in bushels. And so we started there and said, okay, that's a perfect place to start. That's, we know that those things grow here or did grow here. And so we went to, to work sourcing the seed stock for that. And some of it had to come from quite far away. Two of our varieties, the closest place it was growing anymore was Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. So we sourced all the seed. We brought it in. Uh, I went on the road talking to farmers. Um, I made about 40 phone calls. Uh, of those 40, about 10 farmers agreed to talk to me. So I got in the car, drove to the Panhandle and all over Texas, uh, thinking I'd be really lucky if one said yes. All 10 of them said yes. Then I had to choose which four to start with. And we ended up growing. So we showed up on their doorstep with the seed stock, said this is a loan. You owe it back to us on the day of harvest. We're going to come on the day of harvest and take it straight off the combine. You're not going to be responsible for any of this infrastructure that you've historically been responsible for, for cleaning and storing and waiting for someone to buy it. We wrote a really simple half-page contract that had very minimal uh, thresholds and guidelines for the quality of the wheat so that it would be attainable. And then we paid about twice the going rate for organic commodity wheat in order to start that conversation. And so we grew about 125 acres of wheat and rye and about 30 in corn, and we got the ball rolling. Okay, so that was in 2017. And then this year, what are you looking at in terms of how much, how much wheat and corn are you growing for the mill? Well, we're growing about 60 for culinary, uh, but I just uh, entered into a new partnership with Treaty Oak Distilling. 
Uh, over the course of 2019, we need to provide 6 million ton, uh, pounds of grain for them in the form of corn and wheat. So one of the great things about having a partner like that um, is it changes the discussion with the farmer in a major way. Um, so now you're talking about instead of doing little corners here and there, you're talking about doing entire circles. Uh, and that's at a price point where they feel confident now with our one year together that uh, we can go into bigger production. So uh, people like Adam are super important. I wouldn't be probably staying here today if it wasn't for Adam and being an early adopter of our stuff on the culinary side. That's super important and has its own pricing structure. And then our, our brewers and distillers too are super important in terms of moving enough product to keep these conversations going with farmers. So then are you also looking for brewery clients in Houston in addition to restaurants? I could be. You know, I, I, um, I take uh, what happened in New York State and the lessons that they learned there in the early days of their local grain economy pretty seriously, which was they got a little upside down in with the brewers and distillers, and they were pretty much um, monopolizing all of the heirloom grains and heritage grains that were being grown to the detriment of uh, bakers and restaurants. So I'm going to artificially keep uh, the amount of grain that I, that I sell to those types of clients in line so that I'm able to make sure that I honor my commitments with my bakeries and with my distillers. So uh, I do some work with uh, Jester King as well, which is in my area. Um, we're already talking about moving and getting into floor malting. And my, my thoughts are I'd like to provide grain and malted grains to maybe three or four breweries and distilleries in my very tight-knit community. And then I'm not really interested in going beyond that. My, my primary focus is in milling uh, flour for culinary. Yeah, and so let me just ask you, what's your what's your goal to grow this business over the next couple of years? I mean, is there, you know, if you could be selling to 100 restaurants or is there like a, do you have some targets in mind? Or I already blew past all my initial targets, <laughs> which was, you know, we, uh, on the business end, we, we hit break even in month six, which is pretty extraordinary. Uh, I got to quit my day job. Uh, about a year ahead of when I thought I was going to. So I'm now running uh, to remodel my goals to, to match reality since we've been doing so well. Um, honestly, uh, I have no designs on selling outside the state of Texas. It's not local or regional if you go beyond that at this point. I have a few exceptions in Louisiana uh, because they can't grow wheat very well. So it seems reasonable to sell them wheat if they want to have bread. Um, but I think probably... At some point very soon, I need to look at either there needs to be another one of me or two of me in the state of Texas to make it truly regional, or I need to think about opening additional outlets within the state. But I'm turning down business out of state because it's sort of against my vision and mission. So, Tell me a little bit about your mill. Like where, is it made in the United States? It's a stone mill, correct? And right. Like what kind of volume can you produce out of it? I saw a photo of it and I couldn't get an idea of the scale, but I assume this is not like what you were saying, like a roller mill where you can just churn out you right. know, an entire 18 wheelers worth of flour in an hour. So. Yeah, so we have an Osti roller, uh, which is made on the Austrian-Italian border, and it's got 48-inch uh, stones, about 1,500 pounds each. We run it at only about two-thirds the specified speed that the company recommends because I just like the fineness of the flour. So we make about 165 pounds an hour. It's not a ton. 
Um, and then we sift quite a bit of that um, to varying extractions. And then we also just uh, took on a hammer mill. Uh, we're partnering with uh, Sandeep Gaiwali of Mish Bread. He got an Austin Food and Wine Alliance grant to start making mesquite flour. Uh, and so we're, we've offloaded all of uh, what we did is we agreed to house the mill for him and provide support and infrastructure because you can't just uh, run this huge hammer mill in your garage. Mesquite flour? Yeah, yeah, it's an indigenous people's food way. Uh, it's it's based on mesquite beans. Yeah, mesquite pods, the entire pod. It's high in sugar. It's fairly nutrient dense. And uh, it's a new thing that's on the radar for chefs uh, and bakers. It's particularly delicious. It's got this amazing complex sweetness and umami to it. Uh, so Sandeep's running that. In the off hours, we're running all of our brewing and distilling stuff on that, that mill. So 165 pounds an hour of flour on the old world mill. And we can run about a ton every 45 minutes on the hammer mill. All of that uh, is not destined for baking or for, or for restaurants. It's amazing the difference, though, between the two. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm, also, they're not looking for quite as fine a material, uh, but uh, the Osti Roller makes the nicest flour you'll you'll find, artisan-made flour. And I think the other big difference about it is, you know, in a hammer mill, they, they temper the wheat, so they introduce moisture to toughen that outer bran layer so that it comes off in big pieces so they can take it away. And so they're able to take the bran away and take the germ away, and you're left with only the white starchy part. So in our model, everything is so thoroughly crushed together that those germ oils are expressed in the starch of the, of the berry as you make the flour. And that's where the difference is in flavor and aroma. So, And then, Adam, let me bring this back to you. Can customers tell the difference in breads and doughs made with the Barton Spill? Barton? I can do this, I swear. Barton Springs mills wheat as opposed to a commercial flour? I mean, it's it's definitely, it's it's obvious when you eat it. Now, I will say some customers don't see it and they don't care. And that's entirely fine. And that was the beauty of when we opened Sorolina is that there is a certain set demographic that goes into a pizza restaurant that they're in there for a pepperoni pizza and they want to be on their way. And that's that's totally fine. You know, I, I'm at a stage in my career where if you want to spend money in the restaurant, I, I don't really care what you think. You know, let's, let's just spend money, right? So, but there is on the other side, you know, especially with this war we're seeing on gluten, where if you can introduce all these beautiful heirloom flowers to children, you know, they're coming in there, they don't know what's going on, and their parents are buying them a, a cheese pizza, and they're having this beautiful heritage whole grain pizza, but because of the way James has milled it and the way he sifted it, they're getting a truly more nutritious product without even realizing it. That's that's the perfect, perfect, perfect balance for me. We do have our work cut cut out for us in terms of what he's talking about because of this whole concept that bread's been virtually free since World War One, and so as a result, flour has been invisible and virtually free since World War One, and so we're having to change the discussion and do some educating with people about, you know, flour and grain is sort of the last last stand in this long uh, sequence that started with the heirloom tomato. And I think as people start thinking about it, flour in the same way that they think about an heirloom tomato, we'll have a lot, uh, a lot better chance at, at educating and getting people to convert. Yeah. And I, I, you, you know, I, there's like a part of me that just wants to start calling out. Like if you're at this restaurant or this restaurant or that restaurant, 
you should at least be having this conversation with James to to think about whether this is right for you. But I'm not going to do that. I don't, I don't want to put people quite under the gun like that. But I will say there are a number of restaurants that pride themselves on their bread service, on their bread program. Uh, there are a number of pizza restaurants that, or, or chef-driven restaurants that serve good pizza that I think this would probably potentially be um, a fit for. But I do also, Adam, want to talk to you just a little bit about the status of some of what you're up to um, because you're working on a new restaurant in Austin called Marina's. And I was just wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about kind of what that is and what the status of it is. Yeah, you know, I've been laying low uh, this fall. It's been kind of nice to kind of be of a uh, public eye for a little bit. But, uh, yeah, we're opening uh, what I would kind of consider an all-day bakery restaurant. Uh, we have a really great location picked out. I'm not quite ready to divulge that until everything's uh, signed and paid for it, but we're very close. Uh, we'll be partnering with a, a local baker, and uh, we'll be making – bread and vonazerie in the morning uh, and then I'll transition into kind of sandwiches and pizza for lunch and of course for dinner um, it's it's a pretty large-scale project it's uh, kind of like go go big or go home kind of a moment for me um, and what we're doing is we're just we're gonna kind of take kind of the way Roberta's kind of turned uh, Bushwick on their head and we're we got this kind of big weird complex out in East Austin that uh, has a lot of potential and a lot of possibilities and we're just going to kind of swing for the fences and, and get after it. So I have to say this sounds like a restaurant that I would really like to eat at here in Houston. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's definitely a market we're paying attention to. Um, we've been looking at some land deals. I've got a partner um, who's unbelievably talented and unbelievably um, smart about how he does business. And uh, we're, we're looking at purchasing uh, some land out here, especially after the hurricane, kind of seeing the downturn on the economy. You know, at the same time, I'm kind of torn. You know, I'm a, I'm a chef. I'm, I'm born and raised in Austin. I uh, grew up working in some kind of famous Austin restaurants, uh, and I left. And, you know, being a chef in Austin right now who's actually from Austin uh, makes me kind of a unicorn. And... It's a, it's a tricky situation. You know, we have easily twice as many chef-driven restaurants in Austin as y'all do in Houston, yet we are a fifth of the size of the Metropolitan. And so, you know, our labor, you know, our labor problems are well-documented. Uh, there's not enough cooks, not enough servers, not enough food. It is, it's a market that's really struggling, and it's been really challenging for me to think about possibly leaving Austin and so at the same time when I'm looking at doing deals in Houston, I kind of look at it like, well, am I that, you know, am I the carpetbagger chef who comes in from Austin to, to go to Houston, right? So I'm just trying to be careful with it and uh, be respectful of the restaurant market here and doing things the right way. Um, and, you know, we're basically open and, and honest with every conversation we have, either with a, a developer or a, a broker. But uh, Houston definitely interests us, and it's something that would probably be like a second step for us going from Austin. Uh, but we should say you you do come to Houston with some some regularity. You are familiar with the city. Yeah, no, I love Houston. Uh, you know, born and raised in Austin, I I grew up not liking Houston whatsoever. But it's definitely grown on me a lot. Um, the the food scene out here just 
you know, we just went to this little Vietnamese restaurant and, you know, I go to Himalaya every time I'm here. We don't have that level of food in Austin. Uh, it's just, it's incredible coming here and tasting, you know, that quality and that kind of authentic taste of something that's like truly, you know, when you go to Himalaya, that's just like, it, it blows my mind how flavorful that food is. All right. So we can look forward to marinas coming to Austin by the end of this year. Is that safe? Mm, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, and then hopefully news about Marina's Houston TBA. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, gentlemen, that brings me to the end of everything that I had. Uh, except, you know, I like to wrap every interview with what I call the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Adam, what's the first restaurant you ever worked at? Uh, it was called Backstage Steakhouse. James, how about you? Uh, Houston Country Club. Wait, you worked you worked for Fritz Kitchener at the Houston Country Club? Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, Adam, what's your favorite ingredient? Flour. That's obvious. James? <laughs> Flour. <laughs> I, I felt like we could see that coming. Uh, Adam, who's your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Oh, James Harden. James? Oh, man. Uh, gosh. Gordy Howe. That's definitely our first Gordy Howe. Uh, James, what's the first concert you ever went to? Uh, John Denver. Adam, how about you? Oh, man. Uh, cake. Sorry to say that. Cake. Yeah, I've seen cake. Cake is great in concerts. Yeah. Not bad. All right. And then, gentlemen, where's your favorite place to get a taco? Adam, you first. All right. Um, good friend, uh, Gabe Morales' new restaurant, Daidui Taqueria. Man, you stole mine. Yeah, I'll, I'll say that, too. All right. If we go to Austin, we're going to check out Daidui Taqueria. Uh, James, give us the website for Barton Springs Mill. BartonSpringsMill.com. And we'll have online ordering very soon. Yes, sir. Adam, what's the best way to keep track of what you're working on? Uh, through my crazy uh, Instagram, Adam Brick. Very simple. Very good. And you can follow me on Twitter, at E. Sandler, on Instagram, at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.